Hey, this is Ryan Tucker, and welcome to the weekly podcast with Pastor Stephen. This week, Pastor Stephen looks at Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 9 in his weekly sermon, and it's titled Religious and Lost. Thank you for listening. If you have a Bible today, please open that Bible up to Romans 10. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. We've been doing it for several weeks, and uh, we've got several more weeks to go. Uh, I can tell you this Monday when I opened up my Bible, now what I do is I will uh, kind of do a sermon planning retreat every year and lay everything out for the year. And, uh, you know, it's not hard, you know, we, we see, you know, if, if, if I feel like a sermon that I plan to be one is going to turn into two, those adjustments happen. If I feel like you guys hadn't got it and you need to get it again, those sermons are adjusted. And, uh, and so, but what I do is I lay that out, I know where I'm going, and then on Monday morning, I really don't, I really don't study the sermon that's coming up until Monday, because I don't want to give you two sermons in one, you know what I'm saying? And so, I'll be honest, this Monday morning, I opened up my Bible, and I'm like, thank you, Jesus, Romans 10. My head still hurts after Romans 9. Thank you, Jesus, for Romans 10. The title of the message today is Religious and Lost. Religious and Lost. Now, you guys know how Americans love to take surveys. Um, And I I saw this not too long ago, that 58% of Americans surveyed said they don't believe the results of surveys. (laughs) I don't even know if you can believe that one either, right? But in survey after survey, when Americans are asked, what is the most important question that can be asked in life? Here's what they say. How can I be happy? How can I be happy? And you guys know that worldly happiness is like a bubble. It's there and then pop, it's gone, right? I would say to you, and this is what Paul is going to say in the passage today, that the most important question that you can ask is not, how can I be happy? The most important question you can ask is, how can I be saved? How can I be saved? Look there with me. Romans chapter 10, we'll cover the first eight verses. We'll save verse 9 for the end of the sermon. But look what he says in Romans 10 verse 1. Brethren, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness, which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Let's stop right there. Some of you are saying, well, no, I'm just as confused in Romans 10 as I was in Romans 9. I get that. Let's try to break it apart, okay? When I was in college, I read a book. uh, I read a book that was entitled 
Um, can you be a Christian and religious? Can you be a Christian and religious? Absolutely. You can be a Christian and religious and you can be religious and not a Christian. That's what Paul's writing. He's writing. Remember, remember when we were back up, I guess, in verse 8 or chapter 8, and, and he's sitting there, and even in chapter 9, and he is saying, I'm so burdened. I have, I have family members. I have people that I went to school with, my Jewish brothers and sisters. You remember what he said? He said, I would even be willing to forfeit my own salvation if it meant that they, they would be saved. He knew he could not do that. It doesn't work that way. But that's how burdened his heart is. And so he gives us another glimpse into that, and he is writing to people that are highly religious. They had a zeal for God, and he says, yet I'm so burdened for them because they don't know Jesus Christ. They're exactly the way he used to be. So that being said today, we're going to get a little glimpse into religion, that there are some things that religion cannot do. Honestly, you're going to hear these points and you're going to say, they sound exactly the same, just different words. Have you noticed Paul will do that? When Paul is trying to drive home a point, he will say it over and over and over again. And so that's exactly what he is doing in these nine verses. He is wanting us to understand about religion. First of all, religion cannot save you. It can't save you. He says there, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. They may be saved. Now, I know the word saved has come under a lot of attack recently. And church growth experts would say, do not use the word saved, okay? They say that the word saved is kind of fanatical. Uh, I even read one that said the word saved is Christianese. Uh, which, which means that if people aren't a part of the church, they're not going to understand what that word means. But I would submit to you the word saved is a good biblical word. All throughout the Bible, we see that word in John three seventeen. It says this, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him, through Jesus, the world might be what? Saved. It might be saved. You look over in Ephesians 2, 8, it says, for by grace... You have been saved. Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer, he's getting ready to take his life. And here's what he says to Paul. He says, sir, what must I do to be saved? And then here's what Paul said. Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be saved. Not only you, but your whole family can be saved if they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So I believe, as according to what Paul has said, the most important word that we can ask or the most important question that we can ask is not how can I be, how can I be happy, it is how can I be saved. There are two terrible tragedies when it comes to salvation that we're dealing with today. The first tragedy is universalism. Universalism says this, it says that everyone is going to be saved. That everyone is going to go to heaven. 
Well, the problem with that is, I mean, how foolish would it have been for Paul to have prayed, my heart's desire, my prayer is that my Jewish brothers and sisters, that the Israelites would be saved. I mean, do you see the foolishness in him to say that if automatically everyone is going to be saved? That there are folks that believe that one day God in all of his goodness, God in all of his forgiveness is just going to say, hey, let's forget about the blood atonement. Hey, let's forget about the cross. Let's forget about hell. Let's forget about punishment. Let's forget about judgment. Everybody just come on into heaven. It will not happen. It will not happen. Matter of fact, Jesus said in Matthew 7, there's an eight-lane superhighway leading to destruction. There is this highway, superhighway, that most people on earth, they're on that highway, and it is headed to hell. And they're, out, they're, they're, they're traveling at breakneck speed. And then he said, but then there's a path. And very few are on it. There is a gate that leads to heaven. And so if you claim to be a universalist, you have to call Jesus Christ a liar. Because he said not everyone is saved. You see, a lot of times folks will sit there and they'll say, well, what about sincerity? They'll say, well, it really doesn't matter what you believe. And I know this is even being taught on college campuses. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe something and as long as you are zealous in that belief, as long as you are sincere in that belief. Is that all it takes? It's what Paul said. He said about the Jews, he said, my goodness, they have a zeal for God. Is having a zeal all it takes? How do you feel when you see Muslims bending down on their prayer cloths five times a day toward Mecca reciting prayers? Here's what I say, my goodness, they're zealous. I mean, sincere in what they're doing, they, they believe it with all that they have. They're a lot more zealous than I am. The last time we flew back from Tel Aviv, Jennifer and I, we were sitting all the way to the very back of the plane, surrounded by about 20 or 30 Orthodox Jews. Three times they would get up and, and they would put on their prayer shawl and they would open up their prayer book and they would turn to the back of the plane facing Jerusalem so that they might be zealous in their faith. They, they didn't miss anything. They did exactly what they thought they were supposed to do. And I watched that and I'm like, wow. Look at how zealous they are in what they believe. How, how do you feel when you see the Jehovah's Witnesses going throughout the neighborhoods knocking on doors? Here's what you say. Well, they sure are a lot more zealous than we are. You can be zealous and you can be wrong. Right now, there are over 700 registered hate groups in the United States of America, and they are spreading like wildfire. Did you know that the people in these hate groups are zealous? Did you know they are sincere? Does that make them right? No, they are wrong. I'm just saying, guys, it's what Paul is saying. It takes more than just having zeal. It takes more than just being sincere in what you believe. There are some people that are so zealous in the belief that everybody is going to go to heaven when they die. It's just not so. But then there's another tragedy. 
And just in case you thought I might give you the morning off, get ready because I'm shooting at you. (laughs) The tragedy of the unconcern of believers. Now, I don't think, you know, if I were to say this morning, all right, everybody in this room who is a universalist, I want you to raise your hands. I mean, I don't think we would have anybody that would raise their hands. There might be a few smart alecks in here just to see a reaction to raise their hands. But I would have to say probably, probably nobody would raise their hands and say, I believe that everybody is going to go to heaven. And while you may not say that you are a universalist, the reality is we're closet universalists. You say, why? Why would you make a statement like that? Because we're acting like everybody is going to go to heaven when they die. Because we're not sharing our faith. We're not burdened for lost people. We act like it's going to be okay. We're not praying for the lost. Look at what Paul says. Paul says in verse 1, My heart's desire in prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. The word prayer there, man, it's an urgency. It's an urgency in the original language. It doesn't mean that he says one prayer, right? It doesn't mean that he's moved in one service and he prays. It doesn't mean that he says, oh yeah, by the way, I'll tag this on to the end of my blessing for my meal. It means a constant burden, a constant prayer, a constant petitioning, right? He's sitting there and he's saying, God, save these people. God, save these people. God, please save these people. And if you're not continually praying for lost people to be saved, might as well go ahead and say you're a closet universalist. Does it even bother you that not everybody is saved? Or are you complacent and content? And do you say, well, at least I'm saved. At least my immediate family is saved. No, Paul says, it's my heart's desire and prayer to God for them to be saved. Can you do as much as he did? Now, growing up in school, I never liked homework. But I've got homework for you to do today. Okay? You've got an assignment. Here's your assignment. I want you to do this after the service. I don't want you to do this during the service. Wait until after the service. I'm going to ask you to take out your phones. Now, for some of you, that would mean put your phone up and then take it back out later. For the life of me, I can't figure out why somebody would come and sit in this room and stare at their phone the entire time. And by the way, if you're like, well, I'm watching you on Facebook, we've got room down front. No need to do that. Here's your assignment. I want you to find your notes app or whatever that may look like on your phone. And I want you to create a most wanted list. You're going to have your own wanted list. And I want you to put down four or five names of people in your life that you do not know whether they would go to heaven if they died. If you say, well, I I don't have four or five people in my life that are not saved, then you know what? It's time to expand your circle. Don't we do that? We'll sit there and we're like, everybody in my little circle has come to Jesus. I'm good. No, 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 friend, you're not good. Expand the circle. Okay, so I'm going to put these four or five names down. I'm not going to share it with anybody. Share it with a trusted prayer partner or something like that. But I'm not going to share it with anyone else. And then I want you to set reminders on your phone. I'll let you decide how often, but clearly more than one time a day, reminders on your phone to where it'll go off. And if our students do it in school and you get in trouble, say, my preacher told me to. 
Don't know that that'll help you out, but go ahead and use me as an excuse. And whenever that reminder goes off, I'm going to pray for their salvation. I'm going to pray for their salvation. Here's what's going to happen. You're not even going to have to wait for the reminder. And you're going to be petitioning, God, save these people. God, say, you say, well, what do I pray for? What do I pray for? Here's what you pray for. You pray for anything that is standing between them and God to be removed. Whether it's sin or maybe it's pride or whether it be arrogance or a bad attitude, you pray for that to be removed. You pray for the lost. That's your assignment. Next week, I'm going to ask you about your assignment. Did you do your homework? If you did not do your homework, no coffee for you next Sunday. <laughs> coffee bar is off limits. And we've got some really neat things coming next Sunday in the coffee bar. Hadn't figured it out yet, but we will. <laughs> no, hey, let me ask you this, guys. Let me ask. Here's Paul. We know his heart, right? Man, I'd give up my salvation if they could be saved. And then just as soon as he dealt with Romans 9, and his mind was probably right there, he's like, my goodness, the burden of my heart is I want him to be saved. That's what my prayers are about all the time. I go to bed thinking about that. I wake up thinking about that, man. I want them to, oh God, please pray. Please, please save them. Please save them. Let me just ask you, church, what if the number of people that we get to see publicly profess Jesus Christ in our baptismal waters was directly related to the number of people you prayed to be saved? And by the way, it is. It is. God chooses to work through the prayers of his people. And here's what's going to happen. Man, whatever you're praying about, that's what your life becomes about, right? That is your pursuit. And all of a sudden, eh, the prayers will turn into, hey, God, give me opportunity. The prayers will turn into, hey, can I share with you that I've been praying for you? The prayers will turn into, I've got to share Jesus. I've got to share Jesus. I'm just saying, can't we at least do what Paul did? My heart's desire, my prayer, is for Israel that they would be saved. So, we know religion cannot save you. Secondly, religion cannot give you righteousness. You're like, that sounds similar. I told you. I told you. Religion cannot give you righteousness. Now, what does the word righteousness mean? Righteousness means that you are in right standing with God. Okay? We're all not in right standing with God. We don't become in right standing with God. You cannot get to heaven apart from righteousness. And the only way to receive righteousness is through Jesus Christ. Look at what Paul says in verse 3. It's almost like a, a tongue twister here. He says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. You're like, what? Here's what he is saying. He is saying that when it comes to righteousness, there are two personal options that we all have, and only two. The first option, God will see that I'm religious, and he'll declare that I'm righteous. Right? Right? So I'm doing good. I'm being good. I've kind of set myself up to where I'm going to live a life to where God's going to say, my goodness, I didn't realize. I didn't realize just how good you are, man. You are righteous. He's talking about his Jewish brothers and sisters. And I'm going to tell you, if there's anybody who ever understood Judaism, it would be Paul. 
And he's saying they think they're going to receive the righteousness of God because they've established their own righteousness. Whether it be Levitical law, ceremonial law, they, they established this whole set of rules that was based off of the Old Testament law that said in order to be right with God, this is what you have to do. God will see that I'm righteous. There's some folks that think that God is making a list and in the end for those nice people, he's going to give a blue ribbon. He's going to say, you've been so good. Here you go. You are so righteous. No, that's not going to happen. When we were in Jerusalem, the first time I went, there's a couple of things that they should tell you and they didn't tell me. The Sabbath, which is observed from sundown Friday until sundown Saturday. Uh, in Hebrew, it's the Shabbat. It means they cannot do any work. Orthodox Jews cannot do any work. If they do any work, it's going to threaten their standing with God. And so in Jerusalem, whenever I take a group, we always stay at a, a nice hotel downtown. It's called the Hotel Dan. And on the Sabbath, sundown Friday, sundown Saturday, they had a Shabbat elevator. See, for the Jew on the Sabbath, they cannot push the button on an elevator because that would be considered work. And those, so the Shabbat elevator would stop at every floor for 24 hours, very slowly opening up the doors, waiting, slowly closing the doors to the next floor, opening, closing. The first time I went, I got on the Shabbat elevator. <laughs> and you know how impatient I am. I'll be honest with you, I almost never found my hotel room. I almost never made it back to the U.S. But that's, they, 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 they have that so. Orthodox Jews, again, uh, my righteousness is dependent upon me keeping this set of rules. So I'm not going to work. I'm not going to press the button. Listen, right outside that beautiful modern hotel are automatic doors, right? They have the little eye sensor. So when you walk up, it senses you're there and it opens the doors. Well, on the Sabbath, for an Orthodox Jew to walk up and it senses them, it's the equivalent of striking a fire which is prohibited they turn the sensors off they failed to tell me that <laughs> yeah i felt pretty foolish standing there you ever come up with one of those doors you're like it's got a bad battery or something and you're you know you're <laughs> maybe it didn't pick me up this time and so the only doors to get in and out of the hotel are the revolving doors for the Orthodox Jew, pushing a door is work. So they stand there and wait for unorthodox or non-Jews to show up and start pushing the door, and then they jump in with them <laughs> to get in and out of the hotel. I mean, you're like, yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy, right? That they would sit there and think that there's something that they can do that is going to merit righteousness. I can tell you this, they're sincere. They're zealous in their belief. 
And you may think that it's very strange, but I can promise you this. There are a lot of Baptists that are on the church roll of every Baptist church who think that they're going to stand before God and they're going to hold up their church membership card and they're going to say, look, God, look, I was a member down there at Highland Park Baptist Church. Or they're going to hold up their contribution giving record or they're going to hold up their baptismal certificate and they're going to say, look at me, God, look at how good I've been and that God's going to say, good for you. You are so righteous. It will not happen. Most Americans, when they're surveyed and they're asked the question, how do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? Here's what they say. Live a good life. I'm going to live a good life. There are folks even in church that think that God is there, right? And God is balancing. You know, we have these weights and hopefully the good will outweigh the bad. And which I would like to add, anyone who adds on works to salvation has just robbed God of great glory. Now hear me. Lives should be changed when they are in Christ. Paul has just spent a great deal of time talking about this. Your life ought to be different than the life of the guy who does not profess to be a follower of Christ, right? There's a change that has occurred in your life. The fruit is different. The Bible tells us this, no fruit, probably no Christ. Your change has occurred, but listen, not to receive righteousness, but because you are righteous. And we look around and we think that God's going to grave on the curve because we're better than most people and we are okay. And we look at the Charles Mansons and we look at the Hitlers and we look at the Putins and we're like, man, they've made the level so low that we're way above that. Folks, it is not by works of righteousness that we have done. It is according to his mercy that he has saved us. Option number one, God's going to see that I'm religious, right? I'm righteous. Option number two. God gives righteousness through faith in Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 4. My goodness. I wish some of the people on the face of this planet would read verse 4. Christ is the end of the law. He is the end of the law for righteousness. For who? For everyone who believes. He is the end of the law. It is no longer about you performing or you doing or are you showing God just how good or righteous you are. It is through Christ. He is the end of the law. Now, I don't know about you, but I, man, I got to have an ending. I hate for things to be left undone. The other night, the little league baseball team that I coach, some of our guys from the church help. And, uh, and we got a pretty good team. We've we've gone two years without losing a game. And we were behind. And we play a two-hour time limit. Some of our older guys had moved on, and so we're we're trying to work in pitching and all this kind of stuff. And we were down by two runs to a a pretty good little team. Now, I submit to you, they had one hit and ten walks. (laughs) Anyway, maybe your grandchild. If it's your grandchild, if they're on that team, tell them to swing the bat come out there to watch him walk. <laughs> we're sitting there, we're going into the, 
bottom of the inning and we're the home team and had the top of the lineup coming up. We're down by two runs. And I'm like, man, I feel good. I feel good. We're going to score. We're going to, we're not going to lose. We're going to, we're going to win this game. We're going to win this game. And lo and behold, we scored two runs, five to five. Five to five. I'm walking off the field. I'm thinking, am I going to stick with the guy that's pitching? Am I going to put another guy in pitching? You know, I'm thinking about our deal. What kind of changes are we going to make in the field? I'm walking across, going to the dugout, and the umpire says, that's the ball game. Time limit. And I said, when, when, when I hang on now, I mean, it's, we're tied. It's five to five. And he said, good night, coach. And he walked off the field, got in his car and left. And, and, and I'm standing out there like, what? You can't tie. There's, there, there's no resolution. There's no, there's no conclusion here. We have just spent two hours and end up where we started. There's no winner. And maybe you're one of those people, well, the way I see it, everybody won. You're probably the same one that tells your kid, it's not about winning and losing, it's about having fun. Every now and then, I'll have a kid that'll say that on our team, and I'm like, what a better way to have fun than to win. <laughs> Never let my kids win at checkers, taught them great character and perseverance. <laughs> Why are we going to play if we're not playing to win? I'm sorry, okay, that's just how I am. We're tied. We can't tie. We can't tie. I laid there uh, that night trying to go to sleep, and I'm just like, how can we tie? How I wake up that morning. I sent a text out to our coaches, and I'm like, I can't believe we tied. I told our boys, because one of them said, well, at least we didn't lose, coach. We tied. I said, tell you what, use that word again. What word? Tied. You're going to give me four foul poles. No one will use the word tied for the rest of the season. We're in our little circle there. We're doing our closing prayer. And I'm like, my goodness. I mean, my, my spirit's so burdened. I can't even pray. And, you know, and one of the boys said, we'll pray, we'll pray. And, and so we're there. And, you know, I turned to one of our assistant coaches. His name's Joe, and he's from Georgia. And I'm like, Joe, Joe, I've been told that a tie is like kissing your sister. Is that true? <laughs> he said, no comment, right? And his son's like, wait, wait, what, what? <laughs> it, it'd be the equivalent of you guys who like to read a book and you read and you, you get to the very last chapter and you're like, you know what? I'll stop before it gets to the good part, before it gets to the finish, and I'll just start rereading it again. And you get to that certain point and you stop, or if you don't read, it, it would be like you watching a movie and you know you've watched an hour and 30 minutes of the movie. There's five minutes left and you're like, let's start it over. <laughs> it's crazy. I've got to have a finish. Listen to me, guys. Paul has just reminded us it's finished. It's done. The law ceases with Christ. He is the end of any trying to work our way to God. It is all through Jesus Christ. But then he says there's a sequel. It's called grace. Hmm. Isn't that good? It's called grace. 
God gives righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. So you come to the point where you say, I'll never do good enough. I'll never be good enough. It is only by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now stop and think about the guy writing this. Probably the most religious fellow that the world has ever known. He even says in else other writings, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. That was one of the Hebrew tribes. That was the, a well thought of tribe, right? They would argue this is the best one. He said, I was circumcised the eighth day like a good little Jewish boy. I was an Israelite of the Israelites. He says, man, when it came to Judaism, I was so, so zealous, zealous to the point that I even persecuted Christians. But in one split second, he met Jesus Christ and it all changed. And he realized that his righteousness mattered not at all and that Jesus Christ was his righteousness. Over in the book of Philippians, he wrote that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. He's sitting here and he's thinking about these works of righteousness. He's bragging about his Jewish pedigree, the things he used to trust for salvation. And look at what he writes in Philippians 3, 8. He says, what is more? I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. What things? All the good things that he depended upon to make him right with God. He says, I've lost all those things. And look at what he says. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. And that when you have faith in Christ, God looks at you and God says this, now you've got it. Listen, you're now righteous. It is not your righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ Jesus. And so everybody in this room, everybody outside of this room, anyone that is hearing my voice, you are either standing in, 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 in your own sin, trying to be righteous, trying to earn righteousness, trying to do something that you will never be able to do, or you are standing in Christ, and now you're declared righteous by God. And that is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying religion can't save you. Religion cannot give you righteousness, which is required for heaven. And then third, religion cannot give you true saving faith. Again, pretty similar, right? I didn't say faith because everybody exercises faith. I didn't see anyone when they walked in this room today get down on their hands and knees and make sure all the screws were in the chair before they sat down. I saw when the chairs were put together. You'd probably be wise to do that. You exercised faith, right? You exercised faith. Ladies, when you buy something online, you are putting faith either in UPS, FedEx, or the United States Postal System that they are going to deliver your package to your house. Whether that faith is warranted or not, and that's the reason why some of you have sat there and you've seen where it says it's been delivered and you're like, it's not been delivered to my house. And you get on your neighborhood HOA page and you basically say this, who stole my package? <laughs> right? We do faith all the time. So I didn't use the word faith there. No, he's talking about saving faith. 
In verse 6, he talks about the righteousness that is by faith. Then look at the last part of verse 8. He uses a phrase, the word of faith. It's not the normal word for faith. He is talking about a living word of faith. It's the word rhema. He said that you have to have this living word of faith if you want to be saved. So let me tell you a few things about this true living word of faith. Number one, it does not demand miracles. There is something happening in our world today known as the word of faith movement. They build the word of faith movement off of Romans chapter 10, verse 8, which they have completely pulled out of context. And as this word of faith movement says that you've got to see signs and wonders for God to be really real. It goes like this, have you had your miracle yet? And if you've not had your miracle yet, then you're not right with God. If you've not had your miracle, you don't have enough faith. It is also called the name it and claim it theology. You name it, you claim it, God gives it. Friends, listen to me. It's not about you naming something and claiming something. But when God names something in his book, then you can claim it because it's God the one that's doing the naming. You understand what I'm talking about? There are a lot of people today going around, and here's what they're saying. Well, you've you got to see your miracle. Your miracle has to happen in order for God to be real and your faith to be real. Well, you know, Jesus said something about that. Listen to what Christ said. This is in Matthew 12, verse 39, about folks that were demanding a miracle. By the way, you know, they were like, hey, 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 we want you to give us one of those all-you-can-eat buffet fish fries. We, 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 we want to see you walk on water. Hey, 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 turn our water into wine. Look at what he said. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. But the only sign that you will be given is the sign of Jonah. What in the world is the sign of Jonah? Ah, it's the sign of the fish. No, that's not it. He tells us verse 40. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here's what he is saying, folks. The only miracle that you need to see and the only miracle that you need to believe is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. The resurrection of Christ. And there are folks that say, oh, do you believe in miracles, Pastor? Man, not only do I believe in miracles, I am a miracle. I am a miracle. And some of you are like, yeah, I've heard your testimony. No, please, please. That's not the miraculous can I tell you the miracle? That he would save a wretch like me. What a miracle that is. That I could have my sins forgiven. Are you kidding me? That I could have eternal life with him. Yes, I do believe in miracles, friend. I see miracles happen all the time. But that is not a requirement. He talks about it. Verse 6, look at what he says in verse 6. You don't have to ascend into heaven and say, let me see Christ. You don't have to descend in the earth and say, let me see Christ. It's by faith. It's not by some spooky, freaky thing happening. 
And there are people that are going from church to church to church to church, and they're blown about by every single wind of doctrine, and they're looking for the latest religious fad instead of exercising a true word of faith. What is the true word of faith? Jesus lived. They nailed him to a cross. He died. They put him in a tomb. He ain't there. That's the word of faith. So true faith isn't just demanding miracles. And then second, it isn't just believing facts about God. Here's what folks will say. They'll say, I'm a religious person. I believe in God. Please do not think for one moment that every person that simply believes that there is a God is going to be saved. I always find it interesting. I don't even watch them anymore, but back when I used to watch some of the award shows... And somebody wins song of the year or something like that. And, you know, and the music is playing as they're walking up to the stage. Yet the words are so profane that they're even having to bleep out the words at the award ceremony. Now, they may not even do that anymore. It's been that long since I've watched it. And they'll walk up and, you know, they'll pull their pants up. And here's what they'll say. The first thing I want to do is thank God. Hey, don't blame him for that profane mess. Friend, listen to me. It's not enough just to say that you believe there's God. James 2.19 says this. James says, do you believe there is one God? And then he's sarcastic. Good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. He's saying that there are some demons that have more faith than some people who claim to have faith. You say, well, I believe there's a God somewhere. I believe he is powerful. I believe that there is heaven. I believe that there is a hell. Folks, Faith is not believing facts about God. Let me tell you the third thing about this saving faith. It is activated by your heart and your mouth. By your heart and your mouth. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, the word is near you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart. That is what the word of faith. He's quoting Moses. uh, 3,600 years earlier said, nobody can go to heaven by keeping the law. Salvation, he says, is by grace through faith. Paul says the word of faith, quoting Moses, this word of faith is near you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart. And the Jews hardened their hearts. And they gagged on it in their mouths. When he talks about your heart, he's talking about your inner person, right? He's not talking about a beating organ. He is talking about the control center of your life. And then look at what he says in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Isn't that amazing? Salvation is so near. Moses said it. Salvation is so near to you. What does he say? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised you from the dead, you will be saved. You're like, it's too easy. I know. Surely I've got to do something. You can't. It is through his grace and his mercy that he has saved us. 
And there are probably some of you that are listening to me that are still trying to be good and do good. You're trying to act religious. And yet, he says, folks, salvation is right here. It is activated by faith in your heart and confession with your mouth. And it's not religion. When I meet people and they find out I'm a pastor or I'll invite them to church or you know, say something spiritual. A lot of them will usually say this, oh, I'm not very religious. And I'm like, great, that makes two of us. Because I'm not religious either. Religion is man's attempt to work his way to God. It'll fail every time. But a relationship with Jesus is God making a way for man. It's not about us going to him, right? It's about him coming to us. I have, I have no use for religion. You can look around the world and you can see what religion is doing. You can look into Syria. You can look into Ethiopia. You can look into the Ukraine. They call it ethnic cleansing, but it is a religious war. Religion kills. Jesus gives life. Why in the world is the military of the People's Republic of China committing genocide against the Uyghur people group? Because of religion. Religion kills, but Jesus gives life. And the panhandle of Florida is full of religious people. There are folks that would describe where we live as the Bible Belt. I very quickly try to correct and say, no, not the Bible Belt. We'll call it the church belt because there's not a lot of Bible going on. There's a lot of churching going on. They get a good sense of satisfaction out of being religious. You say, what's wrong with religion? What's wrong with being religious? There is nothing wrong with being religious as long as, as long as it does not become a substitute for knowing Jesus Christ. I'll give you an example and I'll wrap this thing up. Brushing your hair. It's an important thing. I think it's way overrated, but... Why? Why are you laughing? <laughs> Let's just say that all of a sudden you wake up in the morning and you say, you know what, man, I love brushing hair so much. Brushing my hair is so important. I've decided that I'll brush my hair instead of breathing. We're like, that'd be foolish, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? And so I don't know how long you would be able to brush your hair. I guess every how long you can hold your breath. But you take something good like brushing your hair and you substitute it for that which is more important like breathing and it's going to cost you your life. Something good taking the place of that which is the most important. Nothing wrong with being religious, but if you substitute it for having a relationship with Jesus, it'll send you to hell. In case you haven't already figured it out through the title of the sermon, it is not only possible, but it's highly likely.
to be religious and be lost. Well, how can I be saved? How, how can I settle this? How can I, how can I have the righteousness that you talked about? How, how can I exercise that saving word of faith that is mentioned in this passage of Scripture? He's just made it very clear. I turn from my sins. I admit that I cannot be good enough. I say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I deserve death in hell. But Jesus, I place my act or I place my faith in you and I place my faith in the act of sacrifice that you made on the cross. And I believe that God raised you from the dead. And now, Jesus, I commit my life to you. I'm not standing in my righteousness. I'm standing in your righteousness alone. And now, Jesus, I submit my life over to you as Lord, as boss. And friend, when you do that, you go from being a religious person to a righteous, born-again believer. I'll go back to the first question. The most important question is not how can I be happy? How can I be saved? Please hear me. Salvation is not a pastime event. My fear is that there are a lot of you that are sitting out there this morning or even watching by television this morning that want to go back to an event and you want to sit there and say, oh, I know that I'm saved. I remember the day that I repeated the prayer. I know that I'm saved. I remember the day that I was baptized. I mean, I know that I'm saved because my mama tells me I'm saved. It's not an event. It's a life. It's a relationship. Are you in Christ right now? Not perfection, huh? but a relationship. Hey guys, this is Stephen Kyle, and I want to thank you for listening to our podcast today, Unchangeable Truth. This is a ministry of Highland Park Baptist Church in Panama City, Florida. We would love for you to visit us if you ever find yourself in the Panama City area. Our address is 2611 Highway 231 North. You can also learn more about our church and its ministry by going to our website, www.highland, and it's H-I-L-A-N-D, park.org. There you'll learn more about what we believe, what we teach, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There'll also be a sermon archive there so you can go and listen to various sermons over the last several years. As always, we would love to talk to you about your relationship with Jesus Christ. So feel free, shoot us an email, info at highlandpark.org. If you'd like to learn more about Jesus and what it means to follow him, Our prayers are that you would draw near to Christ, that this podcast would be used to point you to Jesus and to help your faith grow and your walk increase. God bless you guys. Thank you for listening.